Good morning, Anthem. It's good to be with you. Uh, You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Acts 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 41 uh, this morning. And as you do, I have to address the elephant in the room, which is uh, me. Uh, Because some of you are wondering, who is this guy? I was joking before, some of you in the back might be uh, wondering at this point, squinting, going, is that Stan? Uh, It doesn't sound like Kind of sounds like him, uh, but uh, uh, I am not Stan. Uh, my name is Matt. Um, I uh, just came on staff. I'm the pastor for teaching and equipping, and uh, this is uh, it's my joy this morning. This is my first time getting to be before you uh, on a Sunday morning, and uh, what I want to do uh, just quickly is I want to introduce you to my family via pictures. There's my wife, Lauren, and I. Uh, she's the best thing I got going. Can't, still can't believe that I got her to marry me, but somehow I pulled that one off. Uh, it's my wife, Lauren. And then next, uh, these, are my, uh, these are our three kids. I know, I made that. <laughs> I made them. Isn't that crazy? It's, it's the best thing I've ever done, right? Uh, so our oldest, Marilyn, is six, and then Calvin is three, and then little Clara is about, what, 16 months now, 17 months uh, and so it has been a, a joy as we've come in here in the next days, weeks, months. Uh, we look forward to having a time to just connect with, with all of you. I know we've uh, had a chance to meet many of you, uh, but we look forward to getting to know you. And so far, uh, it really has been a huge blessing as we've come in. You guys have been great. You've uh, left us notes. You've brought us meals. You've... Uh, you made fun of us when we wear coats all through Sunday gathering because we, or the Sunday service, just because we, uh, if you don't know, we just moved from Southern California. And uh, while I'm from Ohio originally, somehow eight years there made me incredibly soft. Uh, and so even right now, I'm waiting for these lights to warm me up because I'm a little bit cold. Uh, but um, so we're loving getting adjusted here. And my role specifically, what I'm excited about is I'm going to be uh, helping to provide tools so that you can navigate our times with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and what does it look like to follow Jesus and navigating our times and the changing times that we're in? And so I'm excited to get going on that. And I'm excited today as we jump into this passage uh, in Acts. This morning, we're looking at Pentecost. And uh, as we come to this passage. It's funny, uh, Todd, who's one of the leaders here, many of you know him, uh, but he sent me this email the other day, and he said, why don't you preach on tongues on Super Bowl Sunday, and the home team team is in the game? No pressure, smiley face, smiley face, right? Uh, And so as we come to this passage, there are some interesting things in this passage. Notably, uh, there's tongues that come, which we're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, There's fire that falls on God's people. And so there's some unique things here because what happens here is the Holy Spirit shows up. The Holy Spirit shows up. And and I don't know about you, but uh, for many of us, we've had different kinds of experiences. And I kind of want to start there. See, when, when I, this was my first experience really with the church. When, when I, uh, again, I grew up in Ohio, and we had this friend who invited my mom. I had a single mom house and my brother, and we went out to this kind of revival out in the, in the sticks. And we go out to this revival, and, and in the middle of it, there starts to be uh, the bands playing, and everyone's getting excited, and there's this, uh, actually someone who's a very well-known, uh, charismatic 
uh, pastor, preacher, uh, I won't say the name, but he was uh, leading this, and, and he says, okay, now um, I want everybody to come up, and, and we're going uh, to uh, lay hands on you, and you're going to, uh, and what, I didn't, what we know of popularly as being slain in the spirit. Okay, and so uh, he said there's this great movement of the spirit, and I, being a kid who grew up in kind of a uh, low-level Catholic home, uh, so I had never been around this, and I was uh, in junior high, and being the boy that I was, I told my mom, I'm going to go up, and when he touches me, I'm going to laugh at him, and because it's on TV, I'm going to point at him, and just so everyone knows, this is bogus. And so I, in the midst, though, of all the chaos, my mom's like holding on to me, like, don't you dare do this, right? And, and then somehow in the midst of the chaos, I get away, and I run down there, and I'm waiting in line, and he comes up, and he touches me in the forehead, and it was like a rush, like a, like a like wind, like a river through my head, and I was out. Now, I should say, while I share that, I'm not going to explain. I, to this day, don't really understand and fully grasp what happened. But then what happens is about five minutes later, I come to. And and there are these three older ladies around me, and they're kind of like, it it was kind of almost like weird, like they were walking like this around me in a circle, and they're like chanting over me, and I was like, what in the world is going on? And, And they said, and they're like, son, 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 did you, did you see any visions? And I was like, I, you know, I was like, I just blacked out, you know. And, and I said, well, I, 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 and we had this, the picture of the, of the Last Supper in our home. And, and I said, well, I saw Jesus with his disciples. And they're like, oh, he's having visions. And they start, you know, parading around me again. He's having visions. And he goes, son, what else did you see? And, I, and we had this picture of a dove in our house. And I said, well, there was this dove, and it was descending, and, and one of the ladies, she comes right up into my face, and she leans down. And of course, I'm still laying there like, what is going on? And she goes, son, that was the Holy Spirit. And then they just walk away. Like, it just, they just ghost me. They dis- disappear, and I'm just sitting there like, thanks. I, I have no clue what just happened. And, and for many of us, that kind of encapsulates what our experiences have been with the Holy Spirit. Because many of us have had experiences, probably some of us better experiences, some of us not such good experiences. Experiences that have left us maybe at best at times confused, and then in the best of times, maybe um, not in the best of times, maybe just manipulated. Maybe Holy Spirit language was used to manipulate, abuse, control. And so I know as we begin to talk about the Holy Spirit that there is a wide range of experiences in the room. And I want to identify that. But I also want to identify that God's word is very clear about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the need of the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so if if you're like me and you've had those kinds of experiences, what I did was I quickly put this idea of the Holy Spirit into a box. I kind of put it in the attic of my mind and I was like, I'm going to leave it there and not open that. And what we want to see from God's word is that the Holy Spirit is vital to walking with the Lord. And as I was looking at this passage, studying this passage, even though it's a very familiar passage, I was floored by how vital the Holy Spirit is, how, what good news it is that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in his people to guide them so that we might see Christ clearly. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at who is the Holy Spirit And then how does the Holy Spirit do what he does? And then third, the surprising key to experiencing the Spirit. And I know they prayed for me, but I would like to pray again before jumping in. So let's pray. Heavenly 
Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see the beauty of Christ, to see our need for Jesus. In spirit, we ask that you would come with power. We ask that you would come with conviction, that you would give us clear eyes to see Jesus and see our need for him. Make much of him in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, it's important we catch the context for this, context for this passage. In verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, when we read Pentecost, obviously, because we're in 2020 reading this, we tend to think of Pentecost as, well, Pentecost, right? We tend to think that Pentecost in their day was how we think of Pentecost when we hear about it now, but it wasn't the case. Pentecost just, it literally just means on the 50th day. So it was the 50th day after the Passover, and in the, in the first century for Jews, this would have been the festival of weeks, and in the festival of weeks, this was a significant festival because this was a festival when they would remember Moses giving the law. When Moses, after God had led the people out of slavery in Egypt, he led them through the Red Sea, and then they arrive on the other side, and God gathers them together, and he says, Moses, give them my law so that they might know me. Now, this is significant because it was the first time that God's people, Israel, had been gathered together as a nation. It was the first time that God addressed them as a people, as a collective people. And obviously the law on one hand, he did this because he wanted his people to know how to live rightly. God's people wanted them to know what it looked like to walk with him, not to make just a complete wreck of their lives. And because God has hardwired the world in such a way because he's the creator. And he said, if you follow these commandments, it'll go well with you. If you don't, it won't go well with you. But there was more more to the reason that he gave them the law, and the purpose was so that they would be a blessing to the nations. You see, what happened before that was that God had, after sin had entered the world, God started with one man named Abraham, and he said, I want to make you a blessing to the world, and so it started with Abraham and then to his sons, and then down from his sons, these sons became tribes, which became nations, And this is why it's important here to understand the context because he's saying what's happened here is God is beginning his church, and what does he do? He takes 12 disciples. They were down to 11, and last week we saw that he adds a 12th, just like there were 12 nations to Israel. And he's saying, these, this is my people. This is my new creation where I'm bringing in a new work that I'm doing in the world. And he's resending his people to be a blessing to the nation. Only now, instead of just giving them the law, now they're going to have the law written on their hearts. And just as God came with thunder and lightning and earthquaking in Exodus, he comes here in power. If you read verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. You see, when we read this, this means that God is beginning to show up. See, God is the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he's not an it, but he is the third person of the Trinity, that he is God. And Luke highlights two specific things about the role of the Holy Spirit. The first is that the Spirit is the giver of life. Look at how the Spirit is introduced in verse 2. It says that he's introduced as a mighty rushing wind. Now, why is the Spirit described this way? 
why isn't the, you know, I kind of in my mind, when I first read this as a kid, I was like, why doesn't he kind of come in like Casper the Friendly Ghost, right? Like, here comes the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, right? Why does he come in like wind? Well, we tend to think of Pentecost as the first time that the Spirit enters the pages of Scripture. Have you ever thought that? You wonder, is this the first time that the Holy Spirit enters? Like, maybe the Holy Spirit just kind of didn't exist before this, and now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's entering. No, The Spirit appeared back at the beginning of Genesis 1, Genesis 1-2, that in the beginning the Spirit was there hovering over the deep, and the Spirit is described as the wind hovering over the deep. See, in the Old Testament, there's a word for the the Spirit, it's ruach, it's ruach. If you spit at the end of it, it means you're saying it right, ruach, clear your throat, right? And so it's associated both with the word for wind And then also in Genesis 2, for the breath that God breathes into man when he creates man. And so the Spirit throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament appears as wind, as kind of the thing that animates everything around and as the breath of life. And so what's happening here as the Spirit enters as wind, it's picking back up on that old theme and it's saying that God is coming and bringing life in a fresh way. That God is entering the world and he's recreating and animating it in a fresh and renewing way. That nothing in creation has life apart from God's spirit. Now this is why, by the way, in in John 20, when Jesus comes into the upper room to his disciples after he's risen from the grave and he he comes into the room and what does he do? He, He breathes on them. He breathes. And as he breathes... He says, receive the Holy Spirit. And what is Jesus doing there? He's breathing on them and he's saying, I am God. And I have brought a new work, a new life. Receive my spirit. And you receive that life. Wind and breath, Luke is saying, our God is entering the world in a new way to give us new life. But also verse 3 tells us the spirit doesn't just give us new life. He also guides our lives. Look at verse 3. In divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Just as God went before his people in the wilderness as fire to guide them and refine them, God's spirit will bring God's holy presence into his people to guide them. Do you remember that in the Old Testament when God's people head out into the wilderness? And God says, I have a plan for you, follow me. But he leads them with fire. He leads them with his presence. And so as this fire appears on them, and you can imagine for the disciples, and they're sitting around, and all of a sudden they look around, and everyone's head is on fire, right? There's probably a moment of panic. And then after that, they start to realize what's actually happening here and how God is showing up. God's saying, in the same way that I led you through the wilderness, now I will lead you with the same, very same presence in your lives. See, this is one of the vital characteristics of the Holy Spirit. I remember I was going through a pretty difficult time. And I was struggling and, and I was anxious. And I, I was like, God, why aren't you working in, 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 in the ways that I expect you to work? And, and I had an older believer, a man in my life, who he sat me down. And he said, Matt, you need to understand this. What has begun in the Spirit will end in the Spirit. But what you begin in your flesh, you'll have to complete in your flesh. And what he was saying there was that when, when God guides you, he will provide his spirit. And he will guide you. But if you don't walk in his spirit, what will happen is that every single step of your life, it's going to be exhausting. 
Because you're going, to be able, you're going to be trying to chart your own course. Now, what's interesting about the way that then the Spirit is described is that then we have these tongues in this context that the Spirit causes the people to speak in tongues. In verses 4 and 6, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, what is this? Tongues. This is where things get interesting, right? Uh, there are places in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians, where Paul refers to tongues as a heavenly prayer language, or it seems to be a prayer language, some kind of a heavenly language. But the interesting thing is that's not the focus here. What's interesting is that the context here is clearly talking about being able to understand other human languages right here. And so when it says tongues, what it's saying is that they're actually able, by the Holy Spirit inspiring them, able to understand the voices around the room that are in different languages and to interpret them. And this is important because we have to read what's going on here in the context of the text, not just in our experiences. Because it captures something vital about how the Holy Spirit guides our lives. That's according to God's purpose. So as a little aside, I think it's helpful just to what's going on here with tongues. And it can't be the main focus because there's 41 verses here I want to look at. But one of the things most scholars agree that that what's happening here is that we have all the different nations of the world that are coming together. And as all the different nations of the world are coming together, now... The nations of the world are able to understand the voices and the languages of one another. In other words, what's happening here is a reversal of what happened at Babel. So some of you, if you remember your Bibles, back in, the, uh, back in Genesis, uh, when, all the, uh, when humanity kind of rises up in rebellion against God, they unite with one language. And as they unite, they unite against God in rebellion to him, and they say, we're going to build a tower up to God, and we're going to have it our own way. And so what does God do? He comes down because he says there is going to be a great evil in the world, the great abuse, enslaving people. And what does God do? He confuses their languages and he spreads them out. And so what's happening here is now that's spread out and it's the reason why God did this was it was until a time that he would bring his redemption. And so they're waiting for this redemption. By the way, that's Genesis 11. Genesis 12, who enters the story? Abraham. And Abraham enters the story, and God says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. And so God gets to work right away, saying, how will I bring about that redemption? And so down through the ages, now we are here where the people of God are standing before God, and he brings the nations to them. And they're under one voice and able to understand one another in one language. And what's happening here is God is saying, I'm going to bring you back to myself. I'm going to send you to the nations with a message that will heal them. Not a great evil, but what was broken will be reversed, and a great good will enter the world. And then it's also, throughout Acts, one of the things as we're studying this book, we'll see that tongues show up whenever the gospel goes to where God is willing it to go. If you remember in Acts 1.8, it says that you are to go, Jesus commissions the disciples, and he says you are to go into Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria, and then into the ends of the earth. Now, if you think about it, it's almost like concentric circles. Like they're standing in Jerusalem, and then you're going to go out from there and then out from there. 
And what happens in the book of Acts is in chapter 10, when the, when the gospel finally goes to Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, tongues show up again. Tongues show up here when they're in Jerusalem, and then tongues show up again when it goes out to that next concentric circle. And the last time that tongue shows up, the third time, is when it goes to the nations, to Ephesus and to Corinth, and then beyond from there. And so what's happening is that tongues are used. God is showing up with his Holy Spirit to help them bring the gospel when it's bridging into a new area where God wants to bring the gospel, where it hasn't gone before. And so this is important because I think as we think about how the Spirit shows up in power, often we think about wanting the Holy Spirit to just show up in power, kind of like putting it on a leash and making it do parlor tricks for us. But actually what happens biblically is that when we go somewhere trusting God to take us where the gospel has not gone before, God shows up in power. Which means that when we are trusting God and sharing the gospel in places where you're like, Lord, I don't know what to say. Lord, I don't know when I open my mouth if I'm actually going to know how to respond to the questions that they bring. Some of you have experienced that that's the exact time when you see God show up in power and his spirit, spirit speak through you in ways that were profound. And so what's happening here is the spirit is bringing new life and the spirit is not only bringing new life, but the spirit is God coming into the world to guide his people so that the gospel might go forth. Now, my guess is that some of you are like, cool, so how does the Holy Spirit do all that in my life, right? I want the Holy Spirit to do that. What does that look like? So how does the Holy Spirit do what he does? I think this is where we need uh, to kind of tweak how we think about the Holy Spirit because assume, we often assume walking in the Spirit and having these kinds of experiences uh, is really what walking in the Holy Spirit is about. Often I usually think that walking in the Holy Spirit is just kind of having experiences and just having something new and novel in my life. But after the Holy Spirit enters here, What's interesting is that Peter gets up to explain things, and he he gives a little sermon, and everyone's a bit confused when he gets up to give this sermon. In fact, things are so chaotic that in verses 14 and 15, they actually think that everyone's drunk. This is kind of an interesting verse here, 14 and 15. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, right? So it's about 9 a.m., and I I come from a pretty, uh, let's just say, uh, a a pretty hard-drinking family, and I can tell you I never saw anyone drunk by 9 a.m., okay? And so Peter gets up with the same rationale, and he goes, I know a lot of crazy things you've never seen before are happening here, but I, I assure you no one is drunk at this point. So it's a chaotic scene. Things are happening. But when Peter speaks, and I don't know about you, but when I read this and I see what's happening, I expect Peter to get up and just talk more and more about what's happening here with the Spirit, to talk about the experiences of the Spirit, to just look at what the Spirit is doing. But instead, what Peter does is he begins to talk about Jesus. So if you look at verses 16 through 18, first he says, yes, this is what was prophesied would happen in the book of Joel. It says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall 
prophesy. He says, yes, the spirit will come in the last days, but then look at verse 21. When will this happen? He says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He points again and again in Joel's prophecy that it will be the day when the Lord comes, when the Lord brings about his kingdom, when the fullness of his kingdom comes. And what Peter gets up to say is that, friends, this has happened in Jesus Christ. And so what he starts to do for the rest of this sermon is he actually doesn't talk at all about the Holy Spirit, which is really intriguing if you think about it, because you'd think the Spirit has just entered. You would think Peter would say, let me give you a little introduction to who the Holy Spirit is. But what he does the entire time is he talks about Jesus. Now, why does he do this? Uh, Probably the best analogy I've ever heard for this was he said, uh, the Holy Spirit has what you might call like a spotlight ministry. Uh, if, uh, let's think about the Super Bowl today. If you were to watch the Super Bowl, uh, when you do watch the game, what they're going to have is they're going to have lights all around, kind of like these lights. And those lights are going to flood the field with lights so that you can actually see what's going on in the game, right? You're going to see the players on the field, and you're going to be able to see what's happening there. At no point, probably during the game, are they going to turn the camera onto the lights, Right? Can you imagine turning on the Super Bowl today and you're like, here we go, and then they just turn on the lights and you're like, look at this, and you're like, I'm not going to watch this, right? Uh, It's the same way with the Holy Spirit, that what the Holy Spirit does is he's like a light and he shines on Christ, and he shines a light in our lives so that we might see Jesus clearly. In other words, what happens is the Holy Spirit's focus, his primary ministry, he doesn't try to like turn the spotlight in on himself. But when Peter is carried along by the Holy Spirit, what happens is he starts talking about Jesus and starts revealing things about who Jesus is. And so the first role of the Holy Spirit, the way that uh, the Spirit spotlights Jesus is the Spirit helps us to grasp the truth about Jesus. Look at verses 22 and 24. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested to to you, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what Peter begins to do is he says, you need to understand who this Jesus is. And he begins unpacking his death, his life, and his death, and his burial, and then his resurrection. And the Spirit is the one who helps us to understand the significance of who Jesus is in our lives. And so immediately he makes Jesus or Peter begin to speak about Jesus. This is why Jesus in John 16, when he's teaching his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says that he will make known to you the things that are about me. He will speak my words to you. He will speak after me so you might know that I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. So the Spirit helps us grasp the truth about Jesus. But then secondly, the Spirit helps us grasp the truth about who we are because of Jesus. See, often, I, I, uh, the older I get, the more I, I, I think this is key. Because I think that often as Christians, we, we're really good at agreeing with the facts of what Jesus has done. We're, we're really good with kind of intellectually, you could say intellectually assenting to what Jesus has done, to agreeing to just the facts of what Jesus has done. But we don't live as if it's true. 
I, I once something, heard something, and it's honestly, it's slightly corny, but it's true. Uh, they said the distance from your head, uh, the distance from, what is the di they asked me, what's the distance between heaven and hell? I was like, I don't know. I can't measure it. And he says, it's the distance from your head to your heart. And, and, and on one hand, that's true just in terms of we don't know the truth of who Christ is, and that's just in our heads, and it doesn't sink down to our hearts. Then that means we, we, we can't be saved. We don't grasp the truth. But I think functionally, we also live that way, that functionally what's in our heads and the facts we know about Jesus don't ever sink down into our soul and change the way that we live. And I think one of the primary ways that this happens is that on one level, we know that Jesus has dealt with our guilt, which means what I did. But on the other hand, then we struggle to really believe that Jesus has removed my shame. In other words, who I am because of what I did. And so often, I think as believers, what happens is we, again, agree my guilt is removed. And so Jesus has taken away what I've done. But every day, the way we live our lives is driven by who I believe I am. And I am whatever my past, whatever my sin, whatever my mistakes, whatever my brokenness, whatever my, my sin says I am. And in our day-to-day -day lives, we know with our heads one truth, but our souls believe another. And where this is key in terms of the Holy Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to drive our lives, is I think that that shame often drives our lives. If you want to think about your life, like we go through life thinking, okay, I'm at the wheel of the car of my life. I'm driving my life. I'm making the decisions here. But often what's actually driving our lives, the things that we worship, the things that we value, the decisions that we make is usually that shame. Often it's that shame that's coming up and it's saying things about us and it's driving our lives in a specific direction. It's this deep need to either silence or numb ourselves to our shame. The deep need to silence that voice that says you are not okay. Through the next conquest, the next achievement, the next dollar, to just get that fleeting moment that I'm enough. But that's not why you were forgiven in Christ. You were forgiven so that you might be free in Christ. See, the gospel says that you were not only forgiven, but that you were made one with Christ. This is why Acts will refer again and again to baptism as this important moment in the life of the believer. Again and again, Acts comes back to baptism. You come to Christ, you're baptized. You come to Christ, you're baptized. Why does it do that? Because it points to who you are now. When Jesus was baptized, what happened when he came out of the waters? See, what happens in baptism is, is that Jesus, when he was baptized, he, he goes in, and, and, and in that scene, he comes in, and he is uh, brought down into the waters, and he goes under the waters of judgment. Throughout Scripture, from the beginning, Think through what happens when they walk through the waters out of the exodus. The waters of judgment, those who are covered by the blood, they walk through the waters. 
But those then who come into the waters, Pharaoh's army comes in and they're not covered by the blood. And what happens? The water of judgment is poured over them. And over and over again in scripture, water is seen as a way of cleansing, waters of judgment. And so Jesus enters into those waters of judgment saying, I've died and gone into those waters of judgment, gone under them. But then what happens is I'm raised up out of them. And then the father says, I delight in you. I delight in you. And see, what happens when you, are, when you become one with Jesus Christ, it means that you die to yourself, you become one with him, and you enter under those judgment waters with him. And God judges your sin. He sees your shame. And then you rise again to life in him, and now the life you live, the Father looks at you and delights in you just as he does his son because you're one with him. He delights in you. And the spirit of God has been given to you so that by God's grace, your identity in Jesus Christ would drive your life, not shame. That God's grace would be at the wheel of your life. And you can't grasp that apart from God's spirit. But that brings us to the surprising key to experiencing God's spirit. So the surprising key. Uh, Look at verse 38. This is interesting. Peter gets through this sermon about Jesus. And in 37, he says, now, and when he was done, they heard this and they were cut to the heart. So the people hear it, they're cut to the heart. They go, this, this Jesus who we've crucified, this Jesus who we do not know, the spirit that we do not have. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So what do we do in response? How do we receive the spirit? How do we experience the spirit? And Peter said to them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the key to experiencing this spirit is repentance. Now, I know when I say that, that everyone's like, what? The key to experiencing the Holy Spirit is repentance? I know... uh, You're probably thinking, why can't we go back to the tongues thing, right? Why can't we go back to the exciting experiences thing? Isn't that how we experience the spirit? Wouldn't that make me feel alive? But this is a, uh, I struggle with this for a while, the idea of repentance. And then I came across this quote, you know, throughout church history, believers have struggled with these things. And there was a sixth century writer named John Climactus. You know, you can quote dead people and they're always right. Uh, or at least they sound like they're right. And he said, repentance is the daughter of hope, the refusal to despair. Repentance is the daughter of hope, the refusal to despair. See, what repentance is, is we're going on this way in life to death. And what God is doing is he's calling us with his grace and he's saying, turn back to me. And he's saying, repentance is not just turning from this life that we want to live. But in fact, what it's doing is it's actually turning to life. And so it's saying, I don't want to die. I want to live. I want to take hold of hope. I want to know joy. I don't want to go down this road anymore. And so repentance is the refusal to die. The rep- repentance is the refusal to just live your life in despair and to live your life in shame, but to say, I'm going to take hold of the grace of God. And so what Paul or what Peter is saying is the reason why repentance is so vital is that is how we turn from finding life in ourselves to finding life in Jesus Christ. 
And this is, again, why it's followed by being baptized. He says, repent and be baptized. Because what is baptism? It's acting out the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ and what is happening in Christ. That we're one with him, that we've died with him, that we've been judged in him, and that we've risen again. And it's, in, it's when you take hold of that reality that the Holy Spirit goes to work. I think often we, we think of almost like we graduate on from Jesus. You know, almost like at some point in the Christian life, like Jesus is kind of like the front door and then you walk in and, and it's kind of like the elementary school years, right? And then at some point we enter into the years with the Holy Spirit and it's kind of like grad school and then we get there and we kind of leave the whole Jesus thing behind. But Jesus is the whole focus of the Holy Spirit. If you want to walk in the Holy Spirit, if you want to experience the Holy Spirit in your life, You must know Jesus and daily repenting of sin, bringing our sin before God and saying, God, I don't know why I want these things. God, I don't know why I have these dependencies. Would you free me from them? And his spirit begins to remind you of who you are in Christ, that these are not the things anymore that define you. It begins to drive your life, that no matter how dark our sin and shame, he reminds us that the cross goes deeper. You know, I... It's almost hard to put this in the words. Describe what the Spirit does. I heard once a, uh, an older man, it was a professor of mine, actually tell a story of his wedding night. And his, uh, his bride was taking a while after the wedding uh, to get ready in the bathroom. And, and after a while, he peeked into the bathroom because he's a guy, right, wondering where his wife is on his wedding night. And what he saw absolutely broke his heart. She was looking in the mirror with tears in her eyes. She was looking at her, at her body. She was looking at her imperfections. And he knew it was compounded by the past that she was bringing into their marriage. And she was weeping. And so he walked up to her. He realized that in that moment, all he could see in the mirror were her imperfections. All, he could, all she could see was her brokenness. So he walked up to her and he took her hands and then he took her by the chin and he said, look in my eyes. And she looked away from the mirror and she looked into his eyes and he said, from now on, let me be your mirror. From now on, let me be your mirror. In other words, in her, in his eyes, he could see her beauty. In his eyes, he saw nothing but perfection. He saw his bride, Right? She's beautiful. He delights in her. And Anthem, that's what the Spirit does in our lives. That often in our lives, all we do is we, it's like looking in the mirror, we're introspective, all we see are, is the shame, all we see are the things we've done, all we see are the imperfections, all we see are our dependencies, all we see are again and again, why do I keep that sin keeps tempting me and breaking me? And what the Holy Spirit does is he takes us by the eyes and he says, look in the eyes of your Savior. The Father delights in you. The Father delights in you. And when we allow the Spirit to do that work, shame, the shame of sin no longer drives us. But the Spirit of Christ bringing us, Christ in his grace is what drives our lives. And that is the message that I need, that's the message that you need, that's the message that our city needs. 
Over the last few weeks, we've been sharing some language that captures uh, a burden that God has placed on us. As the staff has been meeting, we've been, we've realized that we've run these numbers several different ways, and it does seem to hold up that only about 12 to 15 percent of Columbia attends church on a Sunday morning. That right now, only 12 to 15 percent. Just to give you an idea, that's less than half of what's considered a really low percentage for a U.S. city. So only about 12 to 15%. We've been asking, what if in the next three years we helped 1%, just 1% of Columbia to know, love, and obey Jesus Christ? Do you realize that'd be 1,200 people? 1,200 people. And the question is, of course, can God do it? Yes, God can do it. If you look, actually, what goes on here is then it says, uh, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So 1,200, God, in one day, God added 3,000 souls. You know, it's almost like a new, it's a catchy vision say. I was like, 3K in one day, right? That'll, uh, <laughs> you're like, 3K someday, maybe. Uh, but what seems impossible to us is nothing to God. But where did it begin? Where did that revival begin? It began back in verse 37. It began when the people were cut to the heart and they saw their need for Christ and they responded in repentance and relying on the Spirit of God. You see, what's happening there? Well, before the gospel can go out from you, it must go deep in you. Before the gospel can go out, it must go deep in you. And reaching the hearts of 1% starts with each and every one of us. Anthem, the Holy Spirit has come to help us grasp the life we have in Jesus, and he has great things in store. So repent and receive the Holy Spirit. I want to invite the band up with that, and I want to, because there's no better way to respond and express repentance and to come to Christ than to take communion together. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and the cup, and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This points to the sacrifice that I've made for your sins. And, and one of the things in the meal, it points to three things. Communion points backwards to the sacrifice of Christ and his broken body and shed blood. But also communion, when we eat the meal, it's pointing to the fact that we are united with Christ, that we are one with Christ, and that we commune with Christ. And that's why we eat it. And then also it points to the future because Jesus, when he gave his disciples this meal in Luke, what he said was, he said, I will not drink again of this cup until you are with me in my kingdom. In other words, this meal is a foretaste of the full meal that's to come in Jesus' presence when we're gathered around our risen king forever in his presence. And so if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to invite you to join us. There are stations around the room. I believe there are six in the front of the room, the side and the back, and there are gluten op- gluten-free options at the front. And when you come forward, you can take the bread and you can dip it in the juice and then take it and you can take a moment to pray together or you can return to your seats and sing with us. But let's stand and let's come forward to receive Christ.